When you give them that realization, for example, giving a third grade teacher the realization that you don't have to teach the standard algorithm for multiplication until fifth grade, they kind of breathe a sigh of relief for a moment, but then they realize that you've just taken away the only tool that they know how to use to teach that. And now you have to give them something to replace that with. Welcome to the 180 Days Podcast, where teachers and leaders from the education community come to share their wisdom and experience to help educators survive, thrive, and better serve the needs of students. I'm one of the co-hosts, Tim Pope. And I'm your other host, Karen Greenhouse. Well, today we are excited to have with us Michael Greenlee and Tracy Ramirez from the University of Texas Charles A. Dana Center. That's in Austin, Texas. And I am going to let them introduce themselves and tell us what they do for the Dana Center before we actually get into some questions. So Tracy, why don't we start with you? Uh, Thanks, Karen. So my name is Tracy Ramirez. I am a professional learning facilitator at the Dana Center. I've been there about 13 years. Um, My work is mainly in elementary science, but I do some elementary math work. I'm kind of Mike's partner at times uh, when we have projects that are rather large. Uh, So I have background in both uh, elementary science and math at the Dana Center. And Michael? Yeah, uh, so I am also a professional learning facilitator whose work is mainly focused on elementary math. I'm typically the elementary math lead on most of the uh, projects. And like Tracy said, she tends to work a lot with me when it comes time to do some larger projects. So I don't work alone, even though I am the only real elementary math person there. And I have had the privilege of working with both of you in some of your projects um, in the math one. So the Department of Defense um, activities, learning activities, and also the Louisiana. And that's sort of what I would love to discuss a bit today is those big overarching projects that you do where you're making systemic change in large learning environments. So um, like the Department of Defense, and I know you have a lot of other ones. So I guess my first question is, you both said you're learning, actually, how did you word it? Learning facilitators? No. Professional learning facilitators. Yep. Can you describe for those who may not know what that is, what exactly that might mean? Because you guys seem to have a lot of roles from my experience in just watching you and working with you. Yeah. So our main focus at the Dana Center is really on developing uh, writing uh, professional learning experiences for uh, teachers and for leadership at the system level, like school-wide or district-wide or even statewide. And um, basically, we meet with clients, like you gave the example of the Department of Defense, and they give us an idea of what their needs are. And we take that and develop a professional learning experience using what they described as their needs and go back and re-deliver that for their teachers in, in an attempt to make some big changes in those systems. And by changes, you're, you're talking about like how, again, this is from my own personal experience in working with some of your initiatives, but you're talking about helping teachers change how they teach, whether that's science or mathematics. Right. So one of the things that we like to, to do or like to say about our work is that Uh, We try to make research accessible to teachers because we know teachers, as well as school leaders, don't have a lot of time to 
dig into the research around education and what works best, you know, the best practices. And so our job is to take research and uh, make it uh, applicable to what teachers do in the classroom every day. Um, And we try it, like Mike said, we try to do systemic work, which entails us working not only with the teachers, but with the leaders in schools and districts uh, or educational systems, uh, because we've found in our work that if we don't do the systemic work, if we just work with teachers or we just work with leaders, then the change doesn't happen in ways that are that lead to success with students. So we really try to make sure that we do that systemic work across a system. Yeah, I think she has a, a pretty important distinction that she made there at the beginning, that this isn't stuff that we're making up. You know, this is all research-based kinds of initiatives. Like she said, we have more time to dive into that research. So when they give us those needs assessments of what they need in their system, we have the time to, to go do that research and to put it into practice. And we tend to give them kind of a practical application of that research. Like it's it's one thing to tell teachers you need more rigor in your classroom, but most teachers don't know what that means or what it looks like. In fact, most of the time, the leadership who told them to do it don't know what they're even looking for. And so our goal is to dive a little bit deeper into what that actually looks like in the classroom and give them some practical applications so they can implement it with fidelity. Looking at that implementation of research in schools, and I'm going to ask you to make some gross generalizations here, so bear with me. Can you list, like, what are a couple of things that as you're looking at what observing teachers and observing school leaders, what are a couple of things that like, hey, this is really going well, like these are reasons to feel positive. And then the converse, um, what are a couple of the significant challenges that uh, you're seeing um, schools needing to overcome as they as they meet the challenges of providing education in the 21st century? Um, One of the things that I could say that I have seen a major shift in over the past several years as common core standards uh, have become more more prevalent and uh, used more widely, I've noticed there's been a big shift in how teachers teach math and how the kind of depth that they go into, you know, things like the vocabulary they use and the expectations of students in regards to problem solving as opposed to just rote memorization or just learning algorithms. In contrast to that, the biggest issue I'm seeing across the board is that, especially at the elementary level, teachers have a lack of content knowledge. And that's not to say that they don't understand elementary math. It's just to say that they don't necessarily understand the complexities of uh, how to teach students at an elementary level because it's way more complex than just, you know, teaching kids how to count and teaching them how to add and subtract. You know, when you're when you're at that basic of a level, um, you you have to really get into how kids truly learn, and you have to implement uh, you know brain based strategies in such a way that kids can actually learn those basic skills that they need in order to do more complex math when they get into higher grades. So there is definitely a lack of content knowledge in regards to teachers really understanding what that looks like and how to get information across. So I'm going to piggyback on some of the stuff Mike said. I think some of the cool things we really see in our work, both in math and science, is um, as we as we help teachers um, and leaders uh, understand some of the uh, best practices that research calls out, 
we start to see teachers taking risks, you know, trying new things in their classroom and coming away with some successes. Because, you know, you get those small successes in your classroom and it encourages you as a teacher, as an educator to want to do more. So we start to see those kinds of changes, uh, those kinds of shifts uh, with teachers and their practice. A couple of other things that we noticed that are challenges, I think big challenges for teachers that have been there for a long time and still continue to be there is time for that collaborative planning that they really need to have. I think the more we we dig into standards like the Common Core or the NGSS in math and science, the more teachers really do need time for collaborative planning and they need time to, to gather, study, discuss, and act on data that they collect, formative assessment as well as summative assessment data from their students. So I think time is is still one of those issues that I don't know if we'll ever solve that issue, but one of the things that we do try to encourage and allow time for in our professional development is time for collaborative planning, you know, actually helping teachers know what kinds of questions they need to ask of themselves and of their group, then getting to some action steps and actually implementing action steps when they when they have data to actually look at. So that, to me, um, then really begs the question, I mean, this is part of the systemic change that you were talking about previously. Because that time element and after you guys are gone, how do you know that they're continuing or how is the leadership supporting that? So as part of your whole plan, I would assume that you're also working with the leaders and the teachers to try to figure out ways that you could integrate that collaborative time into their normal daily school time after you're you're gone. So that seems like a really complicated part of this whole thing is that systemic change, the continued support after you're physically gone from a training or whatever. When you start talking about systemic change, it's a little bit different than just swooping in and offering a one-off PD and then swooping back out. Um, We're really, really intentional when we present that we are thinking about uh, strategies and things that the teacher's are going to actually feel like are valuable to them. And it's not just another thing for them to do. Because if we just give them more stuff to do, here's another form to fill out, here's another activity for you to implement or something like that, then the likelihood of them continuing to do that after we leave is very slim. So we try to really intentionally take what they're already doing and tweak that so that they could see the benefits of just making this little change, maybe it's a little change in the way you talk, maybe it's a slight change in the way that you uh, present the material, so that they don't feel like it's another thing they have to do. It's more just, a, I'm going to make a small change to what I'm already doing, and I'm going to see the benefit of that almost immediately. And therefore, it's something that I can continue to do and want to continue to do. And that kind of helps. Yes, we do work with the leadership as well, and we try to help them as well. But really, at the, in the end, it's kind of like students who, if, you don't want, if they don't want to do it, they're not going to do it. It's the same thing with teachers. Even if you have leadership on board, if the teacher doesn't believe in what you're telling them, they're just not going to do it. One of the things that, that I've always loved about the work at the Dana Center is um, the fact that we have not only uh, the content teams, uh, like our math team and our science team, but we also have leadership team. Um, and oftentimes when we do systemic work, 
the leadership team plans with the content teams to make sure that what they present to leadership as professional development is stuff that's going to support the teachers in implementing what they need to implement um, so that uh, we get this overall idea of helping them put into place the cyclical processes that will help them uh, plan, uh, implement, and then collect data and act on that data. And that the leadership becomes a driving force behind these cyclical processes because they have to learn what to look for, how to help teachers continue these processes and encourage them to keep working through these cyclical processes in order to make sure that these changes continue after we're gone, because we're not going to be there forever. We're just going to be there for a a certain amount of time. So the leadership does play an important role in making sure that systemic change uh, happens and continues, uh, because we know from research that any kind of initiative that a school or a district implements takes three to five years for us to start really seeing some success or some some positive change. Um, and we know from research also that most schools and districts will start an implementation, a new change, a new project, and then within a year or two, if they don't see some positive results, they dump it and try something else because, I mean, they're looking for that silver bullet. And that's kind of the opposite of what our vision is for schools and districts. We need them to be in this for the long haul because it's going to take time for change to take effect. I mean, that's why I really wanted to talk to all of you at the Dana Center. We have talked to Shelly and Jackie about the leadership part. And that is what I'm so impressed about with my own you know, work with you guys is that it is not just a one-off, which we know research um, shows does not work, but it's a long-term. And by long-term, not just a year, but like a four-year program or a three-year program because change is slow. And that's, that's something I think the Dana Center, like you said, is just really good at is getting in there and making sure all the components and all the people who need to be involved are part of the change. And it's not just the teachers, but it's also the leaders. And it's not just the elementary, it's also the middle and the high school. So I I really like that you brought that up. So thank you. Uh, Mike, what I was going to ask, you talked uh, a couple minutes ago about, um, which I really liked what you had to say around, you try to find... Um, positive things in teacher practice? And then how can I build off that? And I was just going to ask if you could give a specific example. I'm just thinking if I'm a teacher listening to this, like, can you give a specific example that you can remember of what that would look like? Sure. I think one of the biggest things that we uh, get requests for here in the recent years has been discourse um, and how to implement quality student discourse. And I think there's a lot of teachers out there who are doing the best that they can by having kids turn and talk and they're doing cooperative learning based structures where they're having kids, you know, share what they're thinking and they're giving kids gambits on things to say to each other. And I think that's all great. And all of that is necessary, but they're not seeing the results in regards to the depth of the conversation that they're looking for. And so one of the things that we do is we try to go in and take some of those practices and things that they're already putting in place and try to give them a spin on it to uh, show them the discourse process and talk to them about, you know, how to probe student thinking in a way that you're going to get more at the depth of what you're looking for, how to structure situations so that, you know, kids are kind of forced to talk deeper about math or about science in in such a way. So 
you know, that's, that's an example of like a small tweak that we can go in and do that. I, I think a lot of teachers, most teachers try to implement that. And a lot of them just don't necessarily see the success that they want to see. Yeah, I want to piggyback on that, Mike, because I think that was a great example. I think that's something we found a lot of of success with, uh, the discourse piece, because I think Mike would agree with me that elementary teachers are, are great at pedagogy. I mean, they they really are. They They need help with content, though. And so we piggyback on a lot of what they know in pedagogy, like some of those strategies that they learn uh, as reading teachers, you know, the turn and talk, think, pair, share, you know, those, those strategies they use in ELA and then help them use those same strategies in math and science and then increase their understanding of how to take that even farther by using things like, you know, those five practices for that effective discourse. You know, here's a, a research-based resource that we're going to pick apart with you and, and help you implement to make what you already do now even better and help you plan questions that are effective, that are going to really get at what outcomes you want in this lesson or in this set of lessons. So I think Mike picked a great example there. So my question has to do with, you've both mentioned it, the lack of content knowledge that elementary teachers tend to have specifically around math and science. And I think it's because they're generalists, right? They have to teach every subject and they probably, I know a few elementary teachers and they love English. And so they spend a lot of time with their English and they kind of, you know, maths off to the side. So that's got to be a challenge when you are planning for them because you're trying to increase not only their content knowledge of the mathematics, but also you know, how do you deliver it and help students deepen their understanding when the teacher themselves may not have that same understanding themselves? So how do you deal with that? And, and like, what kind of challenges do you come across when you're working with teachers, trying to help them improve their math content knowledge? Well, I think there's a couple things that are really big roadblocks in this. Um, number one, to, just to be fair, the elementary system is broken in this regard because if you think about it, the average elementary uh, classroom spends about three hours a day on reading and literacy and those in language arts and less than an hour a day on mathematics. Whereas there's all kinds of research out there that shows that when you look at basic skills that people expect students to learn in those early grades, which are so crucial to student education, one of the biggest things that they expect is literacy skills, learning how to read math skills, learning how to count and do basic math, and then also behavior skills. And the research out there actually supports saying that the math skills has a greater impact on later education, on their their success later on than anything else. And so, you know, when you talk about a system in elementary school that puts, that devalues the math in such a way, it makes the teachers feel like it's less important. So therefore, they spend less time planning it, less time working on it. And like you said, too, Karen, that, you know, teachers typically don't go into elementary education to teach math. Most elementary teachers go into elementary education for literacy or for behavior type things. And so, you know, that's a huge roadblock. Another roadblock that we face is just the fact that um, teachers at the elementary level don't realize that they have uh, a lack of content knowledge because they think it's elementary math. How, how hard can that be? But the reality is, is 
elementary math is, and I've, I've said this already once, is very, very complex. I mean, when you think about teaching a kid to read and you think about early literacy, those teachers aren't just teaching kids word recognition and letter recognition and things like that. They're teaching kids how to recognize those words in context of like literature and how to make sense of the meaning of those words in that literature and how that meaning can change based on that context. And the reality is, is math concepts and math skills function much the same way. Operations can change based on context. The way you think about basic operations and numbers can change. The way you think about how numbers behave can change, all based on the context that they're in. And I think a lot of teachers spend too much time on basic skills, getting kids to recognize numbers, getting kids to learn routines, getting kids to learn processes. And they don't spend enough time on thinking skills of getting kids to think about numbers and think about them in the real world and think about the context and how that affects them. All right. I think we have a title for this podcast, Hot Takes from the Dana Center Elementary Team. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm teaching, I'm teaching a class right now at the university level. So it's a math master's class and it is algebraic reasoning. And we start, our first three weeks are all in elementary. Just what are integers? What are, you know, and how is this foundation so important? What's the inverse? What's the a zero? All these things. So yeah, I mean, elementary is so important for mathematics. And so it seems like such a challenge for you guys to make sure you're, you know, helping them see that they need some help with their content knowledge. I, mean, I, I will share my anecdotal story and I'm not going to say how many years ago it was because I was just thinking about that a second ago and then I got, I got a little depressed. So I'm going to leave that out. But uh, my oldest son we adopted from Russia and I have this distinct memory of having, he was in, he was older, he was in fourth grade when we adopted him. And I have this distinct memory of going to the parent conferences with his teaching team and they gave me an incredibly lucid and detailed explanation of his struggles to acquire English reading skills. And like, here's where he's struggling and here, and uh, they had a deep understanding of it. And then I said, what about math? And their quote was, yeah, he's struggling there too. So <laughs> I get your point. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think that's typical. People, like I said, kind of devalue what happens in elementary math. I mean, think about when Common Core came out and there was this uproar from parents, especially about new math and why can't you just teach my kids how to add and why can't you just teach them how to subtract as if it's that easy. I mean, they think it's as easy as just showing the kid once how to, what subtraction looks like by putting numbers on top of each other and then subtracting the columns. They don't realize that there is a very complex number system behind that. And, you know, kids need to understand how to, you know, manipulate those numbers in order to understand what's happening with them during those operations. I can give you an example with my own son who is in kindergarten right now. And I made this observation the other day. He can do math way to, to me, it's above and beyond what he what he should be able to do in kindergarten. Like I, I can make some comment about how, you know, my daughter who's 10, you know, when she's 12, she's going to have to do this and he'll just spit out of nowhere. That means she only has two more years. And he does it so quickly and, you know, that's that's subtraction or addition skills that he's doing there, but he doesn't realize that. He's not thinking of it in terms of 
numerals on a page. He's not thinking of it in terms of the operation symbol and stacking numbers. He's just thinking of it in terms of context. And so through that context, he knows it. He knows subtracting two digits by one digit, which is not a skill that he should know yet. But I'm afraid, and I made this comment to my wife, I'm afraid what's going to happen is school's going to ruin him because he's going to go into that kindergarten classroom or that first grade classroom, and they're going to make it all about numbers on a page, which is very different than the way he's thinking right now. And he's going to all of a sudden think math is way more complex than he originally thought, and it really isn't. And I think that's that's an important thing for us. He's thinking mathematically and not algorithmically. Exactly. We force them into a process once they get to school. And that's, that's I think, the huge dilemma. And that's why people hate math, right? They, they're forced to change their natural way of thinking about. I think one of the things that, that you all bring up or that we can even expand upon in this conversation is the idea that with the Common Core, I, I mean, I have to say that, that as an educator who's been in teaching a long time, Tim. <laughs> no. Remember, this is audio only. As far as everyone in this, every, as far as everyone's concerned, you're 32. <laughs> I've been in teaching longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think about how far we've come. And when the Common Core came into effect, I can't tell you how excited I was for mathematics. It's, it's like, yes, this is this is this is what we've been waiting for since since I was a young teacher. And and I remember when I was first teaching or when I was a young teacher, uh, I don't know, Tim if, or Karen, if you can recall, but I remember going to professional development for gifted and talented kids. And they encouraged us, uh, if we had gifted and talented kids, to teach them around these big themes like relationships and change over time and and systems. And, and you know, what we've learned over time is that that is good for all kids, you know, and Think about that in terms of both math and science. I mean, if you think about mathematics as a system, because it is a number system and it has predictable changes and patterns that we can call out and use to help understand that system. And if we do certain things to that in within that system, then there's certain effects that happen. And, and, and the same thing is true of science. And I think we're at a point in this country because we've got the Common Core and the NGSS, we're at a point where somebody, I, w- I hope it's us at the Dana Center, I really do, but somebody can put together an elementary curriculum that is truly an integrated curriculum that takes the content, the science, the social studies, the mathematics, and the ELA, and and integrates that around these big ideas of looking at systems and change over change and, and stability and patterns and cause and effect relationships. Because really, that's what mathematics and science are all about. You know, trying to find those. Uh, cause and effect relationships and understanding how a system works. And once you understand how it works and once you know that you can look for patterns of change, then you can use that to further understand the system and manipulate it, you know? That's what I love about the Common Core, that that it, it gave us the opportunity to think bigger in education. And and I think that Mike and, and the math team at the Dana Center do such a good job at helping teachers see, especially elementary teachers, see that it's not really about teaching an algorithm. It's about looking for patterns and relationships and understanding 
how that works and using that understanding to dig deeper in the mathematics. Um, and uh, it's exciting, you know, to be a part of that, especially knowing that for me as an educator, I've been wanting that for a long, long time. Oh, I'm with you on that. I was very excited too when the Common Core came out because I was like, finally, someone's backing me up. <laughs> you know, I, I will say the Common Core has made a giant leap forward in regards to trying to get teachers to teach at a level and a depth that they need to be teaching at. But it's still not enough because one of the biggest things that I'm seeing from teachers in implementing the Common Core is that they treat those standards as a checklist of things that I have to do. And when they look at a standard that says that a kid needs to, you know, know how to subtract uh, two digit by two digit numbers, well, day one of school, when they're teaching that standard, there is a two digit by two digit problem on the board, and she's going through the steps of how to do it. And what they don't understand a lot of the time is that that is an ending expectation. That is something that they are expected to be able to do at the end of this school year. It is not what you should be walking in day one to teach. And what you should be teaching is this deep understanding of what happens when you subtract larger numbers and how does that influence, you know, how can you break decompose numbers in a way that makes them easier to subtract? And the, the algorithm that they're trying to teach you know, takes care of itself down the line when you build that understanding in first. All right. I want to pivot this just for a second because Mike had his chance for hot takes, but Tracy hasn't had hers. So I want to throw up a softball and I want to Tracy, I want you to run with this, <laughs> which is of all the subjects that get hosed in the elementary school classroom, what's your argument for the fact that science also gets hosed in the typical elementary classroom? I mean, it's the same thing Mike said, ELA gets the bulk of time because, I mean, we have to teach kids to read. And I think, um, I think No Child Left Behind was the, was the driver for that. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great goal. It's a lofty goal, but you know, we have science literacy and math literacy too. And, and I think, I think an integrated approach is the only way for, for elementary teachers to go. And I think, you know, I know that when a lot of the early research came out back in the late 80s, I think it was early 90s, where we got benchmarks for science education and science for all Americans and Project 2061, uh, all of that stuff that came out of AAAS, a lot of that research, I mean, is the background, the foundation for what we now have with the NGSS and that framework for science, for K-12 science education, I think just like with the Common Core, like Mike said, if, if you just give teachers standards, they're not going to be able to implement them in an effective way. You, you've got to come up with resources that really help them teach the, the science and the mathematics in ways that are meaningful and that get at the intent of the standards, not just the content part, but the, the practices piece also, you know, we have some good things coming out in science, uh, like the open science work that we're doing, the beautifully integrated, uh, science curriculums that, that does the work for teachers like Engage New York does. But again, like Mike said, I, and I can't stress it enough, he's so right about this in that even with a good curriculum, teachers need good professional development to help them implement it in a way that gets at the intent of the standards. Because 
any good curriculum can turn into a textbook. <laughs> like, and kids can still be taught the same way. I know I was taught mathematics as as a young student. So, a good curriculum is going to be key. It's going to be foundational for helping teachers, especially elementary teachers, understand the importance of science along along with math and ELA, and then implement it in ways that really get at the intent of what. Common Core and the NGSS really do want to see an education. So that's what we do. You know, that's what we try to help do is help teachers implement those good curriculums that are out there that are starting to come out. Um, and that's exciting. I mean, it's really cool to watch Mike take an engaged New York lesson and really make it meaningful to teachers and make them think really deeply about, okay, Here's a lesson on, like you said, double-digit edition, but here's really what we're getting at here. And here's the, the things we want kids to understand about the relationships between numbers and, and, having, and developing that number sense in order to really understand what that algorithm means, because that algorithm is just a shortcut. You know? And if you, can, if you understand the shortcut, then you understand a whole lot more than just lining up numbers like we were taught when we were in school. So same thing goes for science. We've got to have good curriculums and we've got to have good PD for teachers so they can implement well and we've got to have time for them to collaborate. So related to the good PD, professional development, I agree completely. But if you look at, you know, right now schools are, well, schools are always under budgetary constraints. So Good PD is not just a one day, but that is often still to this day what teachers get. And and so how do we battle that? Because things are not going to change if they don't get really good professional development and ways to collaborate together and ways to try things in their classroom and come back and discuss what happened and learn from that. So what do you at the Dana Center try to do or what actually more, what do you suggest or, or um, recommend to people, to teachers, to leaders out there, how to support teachers and getting this kind of change to actually happen? It's kind of a hard question because there are two things that we absolutely cannot control in our position, and that is time and money. And so when you talk about those being the main barriers, you're right, they are the main barriers. And that's things that we just cannot influence. What we can do is advocate for a systemic change in that regard. Uh, For example, I feel like uh, schools spend a lot of money on quality curriculums. They spend a lot of money on literature and on manipulatives and on materials and physical things. What they don't spend that money on necessarily is quality professional development. And I think a quality curriculum is important. I think all of those materials are important. But I think professional learning for your teachers needs to be considered just as important. It needs to be budgeted just as much as those materials. And so that's going to be one of the biggest changes that's just going to have to happen, you know, on a leadership level. They have to make the decision of, I have money. How do I choose to spend it? Where am I going to get the biggest bang for my buck? It's one thing to have a room full of math manipulatives. It's another thing to have a school full of teachers who know how to use them in a quality way. Excellent point. Yeah. And so I feel like more money needs to be put towards uh, professional development. And I, you know, that sounds like I'm, you know, advocating for my own job, but I kind of am, you know, we, we need quality 
uh, professional developers who can come in and teach teachers, you know, in the moment while they're in, you know, cause they get, they get a lot of, you know, professional learning in college, but they're not in the moment there. And so, you know, it needs to be where they're in the moment where they can immediately apply it back in their classroom and see the effects of it and see the value of it. And that's, what's going to make it stick. That's, what's going to make it, you know, relevant to them. I think one of the other things that, that we've been able to do in the last probably five years, five, six years of our work at the center is um, help, help uh, do help develop content leaders or, or people in, in schools and districts, you know, training them, uh, providing professional development for them to become those content leaders that are needed to be advocates for this kind of systemic change. Um, because it's a hard job, um, but it's, it's a very necessary job. So uh, that's one of the things that we've been able to start doing. I mean, that started with the DoDEA work, um, although we, we had been doing what we were calling our um, our Leadership Academies works, uh, which was before that, uh, uh, which was mainly in Texas. But training people in school districts to, to take on that role as a leader, um, one of the things that we know happens quite a bit is when somebody uh, is shows uh, a lot of aptitude for uh, teaching in mathematics or science or, or any of any subject areas, they tend to get pulled out of the classroom pretty quickly because, you know, you recognize the talent, you pull them out, and then you lose that, that talent uh, that directly uh, helps students. So training content leaders and, and helping them work with teachers to build content knowledge to build pedagogical knowledge, I think is one of the things that, that um, we've tried to do a lot in the last five or six years. Wouldn't you agree, Mike? Yeah. I mean, that was basically the basis behind all of our Louisiana work. I was going to say, as, as a person that was trained, I would agree with you in both those things. It, that Your train the trainer model is amazing to me. I mean, but isn't it sort of a multifaceted approach? So, I mean, like you're saying, the work at the Dana Center, there's direct work with the teachers, there's work with the leaders. I mean, but there's also, there's the policy work, like you bring up Louisiana. And I mean, I'm somewhat familiar with uh, the uh, incredible work that they're doing at a state level um, to provide that policy support. I mean, there's also the work that... Uh, the greenhouses of the world do in terms of teacher preparation programs. How do we bring teachers into the classroom better prepared um, to to do those things? So it isn't always um, having to be done post facto as you're practicing. Although I see, I mean, the value is in all of that. So it's like, all right, how do we press all? We have all these opportunities to help support teachers um, to give them the tools they need to be successful. And how do we? Uh, how do we? Uh, do the best with as much as we can. But like one of you guys said earlier, at the end of the day, it's time and money, right? Time and money and choosing where we put it. Tim, you bring up another good point, the idea of the the, the policy work that we do. Um, we can't, uh, I'm, I'm sure Mike would agree with me, we can't say enough about the work that Uri Treisman does and, and some of the other folks that do the kind of work out in the national work, you know, the policy work, meeting people, talking to people about the work and, and what needs to happen. Um, I think we're really lucky at the center to have people who who are dedicated to doing that work um, and uh, both at state and national levels so that our work that we do within school districts and, and um, 
is more impactful and that we have the opportunities to go into places that we may not have had opportunities to go before uh, because of the work that, for example, that URI does uh, for the center. So this just reminds me of uh, policy. So, so in middle school and high school where there's the end of course tests and the, you know, the ACT, SAT, big assessments. And so teachers tend to focus a lot more on process and procedures and stuff. In elementary, do you find that that's a barrier when you're working with teachers? Um, I mean, we already talked about the content knowledge itself, but are they as focused on making kids pass a test, which then is kind of limiting what they think they can do with students as far as discourse or problem solving? Yeah, I think that is a big part of it because something I hear quite often when I go in and start talking about things such as discourse is, yeah, this is all well and good, but I don't have time to do this very much because I have to get them ready for the test. And I also think the test is a barrier, a huge barrier for science. And I'm sure Tracy can talk on this. That's one of the reasons why science is pushed to the wayside in elementary is because usually it's only assessed, if it's assessed at all in elementary, it's usually only assessed at one grade level. And so the other grade levels don't see any value in it whatsoever. Um, but in regards to you know a test, as a barrier for math, I think one of the issues is if you look at a lot of these state tests, they really are doing a pretty good job of assessing the intent of these standards, assessing the standards the way they were intended to be taught, which includes using discourse and making arguments and solving them with multiple representations and things like that. But I think because teachers a lot of time aren't allowed to look at the test and they aren't, they don't take the time to interpret what's being asked on the test they will look over a kid's shoulder, see a math problem, and just think, oh, I need to teach my kid how to solve that math problem. And so, you know, they are going to put, the next time they teach that that topic, they're going to put that math problem on the board and, you know, start showing them the, the procedure to solve that problem. What they don't necessarily realize is that it's, that test, a lot of the time, uh, the way it's worded allows for that student to solve that problem in a variety of ways. They don't have to follow the one procedure that you're going to show them, which is usually the standard algorithm. They can follow whatever process they want because the test doesn't tell them they have to do it a certain way. And so showing them other ways to access those problems gives them that ability to um, access those problems on their level you're going to get a higher success rate out of your kids because you're going to have more kids who know how to solve a problem like that because you're allowing for them to do it in more ways that they're comfortable with. So I think the test is only a barrier because in the teacher's mindset, it's a barrier. I think what's a nice thing that I see Mike doing a lot with some of the math PD that 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 he helps develop at the, at the center or that he develops at the center is, is helping teachers see that the standards don't call for the algorithm uh, when they when teachers are tending to teach the algorithm or the standard algorithm, let me put it that way. Um, and he really does help them see that that how much time the standards allot or allow for kids to have, I mean, how many years across elementary do they get to, to work with invented strategies for solving addition and subtraction 
um, and and then actually where the standard algorithm is actually introduced. I think that's such an eye-opening piece for teachers, elementary teachers to see. I mean, it's it I, it's one of those aha moments. I think that is that is almost life changing for many teachers. Um, and I, I just love when, when, you know, teachers realize, oh my God, I don't have to teach that algorithm. I can let them figure these things out in ways that make sense to them as long as they can explain it. And they understand the relationship between numbers. I mean, it's really kind of a cool thing for, to, to watch happen, uh, during professional development. And as a high school teacher, I would think that would be awesome because just like Mike's, just because like Mike's five-year-old, who's currently instinctively and innately thinking mathematically in a brilliant and beautiful way, if we taught kids and supported that, then they'd actually think mathematically and not get all screwed up. When we're like, yeah, those algorithms, yeah, they work for positive integers. But now we're going to talk about these other things. I think also though, to the point that Tracy's making is that also uh, puts us back into that barrier of uh, teachers' content knowledge because. When you give them that realization, you, for example, giving a third grade teacher the realization that you don't have to teach the standard algorithm for multiplication until fifth grade um, is all well and good. And they, they kind of breathe a sigh of relief for a moment, but then they realize that you've just taken away the only tool that they know how to use to teach that. And now you have to give them something to replace that with, which again is an advocation for our job. Advocation. I don't know if that's even a word, but it's a um, support for our job because when we walk in and we give them that realization that, you know, look, your standards say you don't have to do this. If you're going to take it away, you have to replace it with something. You have to give them some additional content knowledge that they can use instead. It takes us back to the idea when teachers, you know, when they start to realize that the way that they thought mathematically when they were kids and then couldn't quite get the algorithm for something and, and struggled with math and then began to hate math because they just quote unquote, didn't get it. They start to realize, Oh, I did get it. I just didn't have the time to develop like I should have, which is another kind of cool understanding that they get when they do some of the PD. So it's, it's, it's really kind of a cool progression to watch. And, and uh, I agree a hundred percent with Mike. It's, it's, we we have to give them, we have to not only help them realize what the standards say, but also give them the tools they need to move forward now that they understand what the standards say. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the biggest reasons we face resistance from teachers, especially at the elementary level, because we get a lot of resistance. When you start telling them timed math fact test is not the way to teach fluency, when you start telling them you don't need to be teaching the, t- the standard algorithm, we get a lot of resistance and a lot of pushback on that. But I think the reason for that is not because they don't believe what you're saying or they don't understand what you're saying. It's more that you're making them uncomfortable because you're taking away the only thing they knew how to do. And you're now putting them into a place where they now have to learn, relearn how to teach that topic. And so their resistance is more based on, I don't want to have to relearn this. If you, if you tell me I'm not to teach it this way anymore, now I have to put in more work and relearn how to teach something. Now, would you say that's the same resistance that a middle school, high school teacher? Because I know there's resistance on that end as well to looking at different ways to represent mathematics instead of the standard algorithm. I would say it's very similar. You know, I, I hate to speak on the secondary realm too much just because I don't have a lot of experience there. Um, 
But I would say it's a similar issue in the sense that a lot of the time, elementary teachers go into elementary teaching because they love the kids. Secondary teachers go into secondary education because they love the subject. And so a lot of the times, a math teacher in the secondary level is a math major, right? Or a math education major. And so they go in with this love for the subject, with this understanding of the subject, with their way of doing it. And it's really difficult for them to step out of those shoes and realize and see a kid who doesn't get it. You know, I, I, I had a really interesting experience some years ago when I was working in Florida at the district level. We were working with a, uh, a set of college professors from the University of South Florida. I probably shouldn't call them out. <laughs> but but they, yeah, they were math professors and from a college in Florida, from a university in Florida, a major university. Yes. Well, these, these professors, we were supposed to be working with them on uh, this this huge project where we were, you know, we had several dis- districts working together. We had these college professors working with us and things like that. And we were supposed to be developing these uh, curricular activities, right? And I had these two professors working with me on the elementary level, and I was developing some multiplication activities. And they argued with me every day because they would say, I don't understand why we do- have to do all this. Why can't you just tell them to multiply? Why can't they just do the multiplication? Why do they have to do all this other stuff? And these are the college math professors who are telling you this. They couldn't get past their understanding of that's a basic thing. They should just know it. Let's move on. It it was an interesting experience. That's one of the things that helped me realize that a lot of adults feel that way. You know, that's part of their resistance to mathematics is, I have this one way of doing it. And when you don't do it that way and you make me uncomfortable, I don't understand why you're doing it that way. All right. I get humble. I get humbled in my classroom on a regular basis when a student gets the right answer and does it in a way I've never even considered doing it before. It's cool though to see, right? <laughs> it is cool and humbling. My intent was to be a middle school or a high school math teacher. And I was getting my degree in, in computer science mathematics. Um, but uh, for some reason, I ended up student teaching in a first grade classroom. Don't ask me how that happened. I don't know. And it's a... Stretch (laughs) for me, and I have to say that uh, my first year in the classroom, I I went ahead and took a first grade job because I fell in love with the kids. But when we would do math, I just, you know, I couldn't understand why they just couldn't add because I told them to. (laughs) You know, I just couldn't get it, and uh, I have to say, I have to. I have my aunt to thank who who sent me to who told me to go to some specific training. Uh, I'm going to age myself here by saying uh, I went. I started going to math their way trainings, um, and it was eye opening for me coming from a background of someone who wanted to be a secondary educator in math to see how kids actually develop understanding uh, of relationships of numbers, you know, how do you decompose a number? And why is it important to know how to decompose a number in multiple ways? You know, I mean, why is that important? And so to figure that out through these, these this series of workshops and to understand how little kids actually learn mathematics was so eye-opening for me. And I think that's what made me go into the, stay in the elementary realm and, and do the work that I do now, because I mean, it was, there were things that I understood, 
just because I knew the algorithm or I knew the formula, but then working it out on the geoboard and seeing that one half base times height and why that works for the area of a triangle uh, it was just eye opening for me as a as a as a student. I mean, it all starts in elementary school, and I think we forget that when we're up in the upper levels that you know they're they're all getting that foundation back there. So that's a really important time in life. Amen. It is. And so I think uh, for me, you know, thinking about what Mike said about secondary teachers or people who teach mathematics at upper levels, put them in a first grade classroom. (laughs) I agree. I think everyone needs to experience it a little bit. That's a great idea. All right. So my question to both of you is if, if we have, hopefully we have teachers out there that are listening. So elementary teachers and, you know, you talked about the need for professional learning and really improving your content knowledge. So if you're a teacher listening now, what, what advice might you give uh, an elementary teacher who wants to become better at teaching mathematics? Like where might they go or what might they do? Well, it may sound cliche, but one of the things that I would always say is that a teacher should never think they know everything there is to know and that they should never stop learning. And so they should be constantly looking out for new ways to do things. And I don't mean going on Teachers Pay Teachers or Pinterest to find new worksheets that have cute little farm animals on there. (laughs) (laughs) I was totally going to ask you about Teachers Pay Teachers. That's a question I eliminated from my list. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) What What I mean is going out and looking for new ways to understand how kids think, new ways to understand how to teach the top of the subject that you're trying to teach, how to get more out of your kids. There are so many great resources out there that do so much more than just give you activities to do with your kids. They tell you why we teach it certain ways and how that impactful that is and why it's important to use certain vocabulary at certain age levels and things like that. And so, you know, the, the cliche answer of always seeking out new learning. That was something that I did as a teacher, which is probably why I am the way I am now, is I never went into the classroom thinking, I know what to do every day. I went into the classroom thinking, oh, this didn't go well. Let me see if I could figure out how to do it better the next time. And I actually put in that effort to learn how to do it better. And when I learned how to do it, I was the first one out of school to go to my principal and say, I just learned this cool new thing. I don't think other people know it. Can I share it? And, you know, it blossomed from there into a professional learning kind of uh, career for me. Um, so I, I think I, when, as you asked that question, I thought of two things. The first thing is uh, find the teacher's the, the few teachers on your campus whose kids love coming to school and go watch and see what's happening in the classroom. Um, because chances are you're going to find some things in there that you may not be d- using or doing, or you might find some strategies or some something that will kickstart you into doing some further research. Like Mike said, finding, finding other, other areas or ways or of teaching um, that could, could p- potentially change your life as an educator. Um, uh, like I said, math their way was the thing for me. I, I still think about the, the change that made for me and, and how impactful that was, uh, even though it was a lot so of years Tim, ago. Tim, you want to end with your, you know, your closing the thoughts? The Common Core represents a lot oh. of what I learned way back then. The other thing uh, I would recommend is 
and I don't know if this is for individual teachers, but um, don't write off your colleagues who seem who who seem stuck in tradition because it could just be that that's you know we as teachers get beaten down every day in the classroom on the media we could just get beaten down day after day and sometimes when you don't know what you don't know and and things don't work you revert to the traditional um and i think that's where some teachers are you know they just revert to the traditional they revert to the way they were taught uh, because they don't, they they're not experiencing success in other ways or trying new things. So, keep in mind that your colleagues, you know, who may seem overly traditional, may just need to experience some successes with new stuff. So, don't be afraid to share. Don't be afraid to be that person like Mike was. That if you find something that works, something that's really cool, or you find a, a resource or something that changes something in your own teaching, don't be afraid to share it. You know, and don't be afraid to encourage your colleagues to try new stuff uh, to help them implement Common Core or the NGSS. I think that's that's important to keep in mind. Well, thank you. That, those were both great answers. I'm I'm ready to go out and go learn something new right now. I know I'm all fired up. I mean, I may I may I may have to think about what I'm going to teach next week when I get back to school. <laughs> so, Tim, you want to end with your your closing thoughts? It's not really a closing thought. Like that really is the best closing thought. So maybe this might be relevant to put in earlier. I just want to say, and I should have said it at the beginning. Um, I, I have nothing but the utmost respect for elementary teachers. I know we talked a lot about the challenges and all the different things um, that uh, um, we want to see changed in elementary instruction. Um, those folks have an amazing amount of stuff on their plate. I am a lazy high school math teacher. I only have to think about geometry and pre-calculus, and that's all I ever think about because nobody cares about anything else. Um, so to have a group of people who are tasked with being responsible for the socio-emotional development of young children, and I mean, we take, I mean, I'm sure if we, we could have a social studies specialist on here as well as we have math and science. I mean, could everyone say, yeah, you have to know your content. You have to have that deep embedded knowledge. Um, and I, I've, I've not met an elementary teacher who doesn't try to do that every day. I, I loved what you said, Tracy, about um, having respect for traditional teachers and the work they're doing. So I, uh, I just wanted to put that out there. Like, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, um, but there's a lot of good too. And uh, uh, let's keep let's keep fighting. Let's keep fighting the good fight for these kids because I mean they deserve it, and uh, so do the teachers. I would agree with you 100%, Tim, 110%. And that's why we're all here, right? We all got into education for that. Exactly. You guys gave such great fire-up talks. I thought I had to give at least a shot at it here at the end myself. <laughs> well, I think we've come to the end of our time, and I really want to thank both of you for joining us and sharing all of your expertise. We will include a link to the Dana Center and other resources if you're interested in reaching out to the Dana Center and getting some support for your initiatives as well. So thank you very much for listening. Please make sure to follow us and to check out our website where you can see all of our past episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. That's 180days.education. So thank you again. Thank you, Tim. Have a great day. who cry out against research, who seek to limit our educational system. The educated citizen knows how much more there is to know. Knowledge is power, more so today than ever before.